Hi, this is Golf Yeah! podcast host Gordon Andrew. Before I start my interview with Tom Coyne, I just want to apologize for the quality of the audio on my side of this interview. Thankfully, Tom's side comes across loud and clear, and he's the one you've come to listen to. I'm new to podcasting, and technology is not my strong suit. So I have my promise that these episodes will get better as I learn how to use podcasting tools. In the meantime, thanks for your patience, and thanks for listening. You're listening to Golf Yeah! Your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah! provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. Tom Coyne is a highly regarded author of four golf-related books. His most recent book, A Course Called Scotland, was published this past summer, and it chronicles Tom's 2015 odyssey, where he played 110 courses in Scotland over 57 days. This was a sequel to his 2009 book entitled A Course Called Ireland that covers his 16 weeks playing nearly 60 courses. Both of those books provide great insights into Lynx golf courses in Ireland and Scotland, but Tom Coyne is not a travel writer. He's a world-class Irish storyteller without the blarney. He's an extremely talented writer, and his books are a joy to read. I know you'll enjoy my conversation with Tom, even if you have, haven't read any of his books yet. But if you're a serious golfer, you really need to put them on your reading list. And we've made it easy for you to do that because in the show notes section of the Golf Yard website, there's a link to Tom's books on Amazon. And you can start with his latest book on Scotland or start with his first book called A Gentleman's Game that he wrote as a grad student and was made into a movie. So if you're thinking about a career that involves writing about golf or writing about any topic, then this podcast should be well worth your time. In addition to being a published author, Tom's a professor at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, where he's taught writing for 15 years. As you'll hear, Tom is no stuffy professor or published author like J.D. Salinger with an attitude. He's the kind of guy you'd love to play golf with, but you may want to keep your money in your pocket because even on his worst days, my guess is he's likely to beat you. So let's tee it up right now with Tom Coyne. Tom, welcome to Golf Yeah, which I understand is your 235th podcast interview. And my first question is, do you ever get tired of doing this? No, first, Gordon, thank you so much for having me. That was an incredibly generous, I mean, that was poetic, that introduction itself. <laughs> I would give you an A+. No, that was right. really thoughtful. And thank you for sharing all that information with the readers and, and or sorry, the listeners. And no, I don't get sick of doing them at all. I think it's wonderful to be asked to do it. I'm excited so many people do want to talk about the book or Lynx Golf, that there is so much interest there. And I'm always eager to share the story and try and, and hopefully get more people to check it out. So no, it's actually, it's been a lot of fun. I've met a lot of different people, been asked a lot of different sort of questions. So no, it's actually, it's been, I've probably done a lot more publicity for this book than I have for any others. But you know, that's definitely a good thing. I have to tell you, you know, in addition to reading your books, I've listened to about four or five uh, podcasts that you've done. And I actually know so much about you. I'm starting to feel like I've been married to you for a while. Do, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I got to tell Allison to listen to them too, because she's forgetting. Oh, I'm doing so many podcasts, she never sees me. Like, Honey, just listen to the podcast. 
Well, one of the funniest things that I heard you say on a podcast is that you went to school to be a fiction writer. So my question is, who does that? I mean, aren't you supposed to drop out of school to be a fiction writer? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's funny. I went to school. I was an English major and then started writing a lot of, I was a lot of majors actually, and then settled on <laughs> English and started writing a lot and started writing some fiction and thought, you know, what's the next step? You know, you're right. At one point, the next step for a fiction writer was to drop out of life and, you know, move to San Francisco or New York and hang out in coffee shops. But now what people do is they go to MFA programs, they go to writing programs. So that's what I did. I went to a fiction writing program, actually stayed at Notre Dame to do their fiction writing program. And that's where, you know, I learned what I don't do well uh, first. And then I learned what maybe I could do. I could do okay. And or well enough. And that's where I wrote A Gentleman's Game as my graduate thesis. So yeah, yeah, it did all start there. And contrary to the struggling writer stereotype, you came out of the blocks really hot at it, age 24. It all came like really fast. And, and for that reason, I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I would now. You know, I got out of school in, you know, June, I had an agent in September who sold the book within a couple weeks and then sold the movie rights within another week. And that's not how it usually goes. I didn't know that then. I know that now, <laughs> you know, so it was this, my expectations, it was funny, you know, the movie's getting made and, you know, I'm around the set and all this wonderful things are happening. And I'm just sort of assuming like this, Hey, this is what it is to be a writer. You know, next year we'll do another movie. It'll be great. I can't wait. So it certainly isn't like that. <laughs> you know, was there, I'm, I'm waiting for the next one. Was there a plan B? I mean, did your parents expect you to move back in with them? For yeah. To period of time? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. Like, I never really left. I didn't call it living at home. I called it living on the ancestral estate. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it sounded better that way. And yeah, no, I certainly couldn't afford to, to have my own place for a long time. But that's fine because I just lived, stayed up all night and wrote. And so I was sort of like a ghostly roommate anyway for them, I suppose. I guess the plan B, yeah, I thought I had a manuscript coming out of school and the plan was I'll give myself a couple years to try and sell this. And if I can't, then I was actually going to, I was set to go to Trinity College to study Irish literature and I'd been accepted and made my deposit before I got into the writing program at Notre Dame. So I guess my plan B would have probably been to go into academia as doing literature versus creative writing. But I did somehow end up making it back to academia as a writer. So Yeah. Did any of your classmates at Notre Dame in the MFA program share any any success similar to yours? Or were they jealous of what you achieved so quickly? You know, no, there were a number of folks who did have a lot of success. And I was there with a really cool, at the time I was there, we had, you know, 10 fiction writers, 10 poets. And we just had a really well bonded group of fiction writers. We were together all the time. We took all our classes together. We knew each other's work inside and out. And so, no, we were really rooting for each other, which I think is somewhat unique for a writing program. The big programs can be rather cutthroat, very competitive, fighting for agents and this, that, and the other. And in our program, at least at the time I was there, we were all kind of just scrambling and hoping and cheering for the first person to make it. And if they made it, they'd bring us all along. And, and I did do that. I, one of my friends, I got him hooked up with my agent and he published some stuff. And so, no, it was actually a really cool atmosphere. And thank God, because I've heard nightmare stories about writing programs, but ours was very supportive. 
Well, is there such thing as a successful poet? Don't you have to be dead to be a famous poet? <laughs> God bless the poets. They're not okay. in it for the money. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. You know, they're, I mean, I probably read as much poetry as I do prose. Really? And well, just because I think that's where you learn language. You know, I think that's yeah. where you learn rhythms of sentences and interesting images. And so I think as a prose writer, you have to read a lot of poetry. So thank God they're doing it. And if they can make a living, that's awesome. Or they can teach, which, you know, a lot of my colleagues do. Do you have a theory about luck to talent ratio in terms of as a supply to success? That's interesting. So, the, yeah, I mean, just thinking about what's happened in my life, definitely a fair amount of luck. I was in the right place at the right time to meet the right agent. And I was also at the right time in golf when Tiger was coming up and golf courses are being built everywhere and Legend of Bagger Vance was coming out as a movie and all this stuff was happening. So golf was kind of like interesting and entertainment wise was people were into it. So it was really good timing, you know, to break in. So yeah, that was lucky. But then you look at it from the other side, like to be at the places I was to meet my agent, which I did by like crashing a New York publishing party, dressing up like I went to Banana Republic and bought like New York clothes and when I got jumped on a train and crashed a party that was all full of agents and editors. And I was there with manuscripts in my backpack. So it's luck that I got the chance to do that. But it's also mean, you know, I did have to hustle. Like I got my ass on the train and went and really put a lot of work into getting the manuscript out there and doing because I think some writers wear don't always wear that hat as well, that self promotional hat. Some of my friends who were brilliant, brilliant writers and whose writing really awed me. They were very uncomfortable with the notion of try having to sort of sell themselves. And at the end of the day, great work is going to find its way out there. And you don't have to be a salesman necessarily. But it certainly doesn't hurt if you're comfortable with wearing that. Like if you're comfortable doing the hustle, doing the emails, making the phone calls, sending the manuscripts, all that. That's a very different set of skills. Not all. I don't think it comes naturally to all writers. So it's an advantage if you can do both. And I would say that's an important point because I think in many professions, I work with lawyers a lot, you know, and some very great lawyers, but they consider marketing themselves to be beneath their station. You know, and I think that you've got to make that kind of compromise to decide whether or not you want to be the greatest lawyer in the world that nobody's heard of or make money at your craft. You know, so. That absolutely applies to writing. There's so many great writers I can imagine would just sort of feel like doing this or doing that is definitely, it's beneath the art. And I, I'm sympathetic to that. For me, it's something I needed to do and work for me. So, Okay. Can I talk a little bit about your teaching philosophy with respect to writing? Because there is a school of thought that suggests that writing can't be taught. You're either a good writer or you're not a good writer. Is that, do you agree with that? Or? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm aware of that kind of thinking about the teaching of writing. And yeah, can writing be taught? I mean, I think we just, we generally, you have to bring a basic skill set to it no doubt about it. And obviously, there are just people who have a pure talent for the way that they are able to observe the world and capture it on paper. So there's that. But can it be taught? Absolutely. I think in Stephen King's memoir on writing, he talks about, you know, writing, the teaching of writing, he spends like half the book telling you that writing can't be taught, and that you can't learn anything from a writing book, and then spends the second half, like trying to teach you how to write in his book. So it's kind of funny. But what he based the point he comes to, which I sort of agree with is that like, it's very possible for an average writer to be a good writer. It's, it's probably more difficult or more unlikely for a good writer 
to become a transcendent writer, you know. And the way that you do that and the way that I approach my classes is, and the thing that helped me the most in graduate school learning myself was learning my strengths and weaknesses and learning where my tendencies were to become sentimental or overwrite or abuse certain words or, you know, having that pointed out to me, it taught me what I needed to become better at. It taught me more about the things I sort of needed to read. I think that's probably the best thing you do in a writing class is you're given good things to read. In graduate school, I was reading great stuff and writers who inspired me and writers about like whom I wanted to write like. And so that's invaluable. But yeah, I think the teaching of writing is sometimes a process of learning what not to do. And then what it is, is practice. And so what I do in my course is constant practice. It's daily writing. It's trying to find, you know, that sort of nebulous idea of let's find your voice. We only, people hardly even know what that would mean. And it means something different to everyone else. But the only way you even approach it is if you're writing all the time. So the practice of it is, I think, invaluable. And that's something you do get in a writing class. What I run into a lot with people who I think are poor writers or people that I'm trying to assist to make the writing better is there's no structure. They haven't thought what their, thought out what their train of thought is or where they want to start and where they want to end up. And I don't understand how you can even begin to write if you don't have that structure in mind at the outset. Do you teach that in your classes? That Absolutely. I think especially when I teach freshmen, when they come into English 101, and they're intimidated and they, they're not sure what college writing is. And I try to sort of demystify it to them by basically telling them that good writing is organized thought. You know, writing is organized thinking. That's what it is. And that's why it's an invaluable skill because not everyone can do that. But if you can, you're showing, you know, to them, I'm telling, because I've got like, you know, 20 business majors in English 101. And I'm telling them, you know, if you can write well, what you're showing in a potential employer is that you have clarity of thought, and that is invaluable and very marketable. Yeah, so really structure and organization is something that's so fundamental. And like you said, is the thing that most writers lack. So I work on that with students a lot. Do you see any connection between writing and the aspect of the golf game? And I'll give you an example. I'll be playing with someone, and they'll say to me at the outset, I'm a really lousy putter. I'll know right away they're going to be a lousy putter. And I think I've heard people say I'm a lousy writer, and I wonder if that also affects how effective they can be as a writer, that they've already decided for themselves they can't be good at it, so they're not. No doubt about that. I mean, that's actually a really interesting way of looking at it because, yeah, I'll have students come into, say, intro to creative writing, and they'll say, well, you know, they'll have a piece to present. They'll say, well, this isn't any good, or they'll say, you know, I'm just not creative, or I don't have the imagination that he or she does. And that's something I try to catch like right off the bat and explain to them that one, yes, you are. You have stories to tell. You have a way of looking at the world that nobody else has. Our job in here is to help you tap into that, to help you to, we all have natural curiosity. And rather than cover that up or sort of let our busy lives get in the way of that, you know, I try to really cultivate their curiosity in class. So Yeah. So that predetermined notion of I'm good at, and yeah, it definitely applies to golf. If you say, you know, I slice the ball, you're going (laughs) to slice the ball all day. And if you go into a class, fear, and this is another Stephen King quote, who some people probably don't respect as a writer of high literature, but man, the dude knows books and he knows story incredibly well. And one of the things that he said is that fear is at the root of most bad writing. I think fear is probably at the root of most bad golf as well. So I try to encourage my students to, you know, put that fear in a jar, put it away, 
try and be fearless, especially in your first drafts. There's always time to clean it up. There's always time to make it better. So you're, the old adage is write what you know about, and that certainly is applied to your writing career because you knew a lot about golf. You started as a kid caddying and played you know, right from a very early age. So that's been your focus. That's been your genre. What if that were not your niche? Though? I mean, do you think your writing career would have been as successful? That's a good question. I mean, after I did a gentleman's game, I spent a couple years trying to write different sorts of novels that weren't about golf. Because I probably still had that like hangover from academia that to be important or, you know, I still wanted to be like my literary heroes and writing about golf for whatever reason, I didn't think it was going to get me there. And so it did sort of just, it did take some time for me to get comfortable and settle into the idea that, you know, this is what I do. This is what I love. This is what I hope that I'm good at. And, and it was what I wanted to do as well. But if I wasn't writing about golf, I'd be writing about something. I'd probably be writing screenplays, doing about something. I would be writing. But would it have like the commercial success? Who knows? Because the nice thing about golf, the upside and the downside about golf is that, you know, golf has a readership. Golf has a bookshelf in the bookstore. And that's great. So there's a place for my books to go. The downside of that is golf's readership probably kind of caps out at a certain place. So you can do well with a golf book. But is it going to be, you know, a breakthrough national bestseller for nonfiction or fiction? That's a little bit tougher when you're writing in what maybe a niche or a genre. So have they been done studies on the reading levels of golfers? I don't mean in terms of their capacity, but just in terms of are they big readers or? They are. are. I mean, I don't know if studies have been done. I think it was George Plimpton who said it well was, you know, the smaller the ball, the better the readership, and, okay. you know, in terms of sports books. And the smaller the ball, the better the literature, I think is how he put it. And, and yeah, I think golf has the best canon of literature. And for any number of reasons, you know, it's such a mental game. It lends itself to thoughtfulness. A lot of smart people have played it. You know, and there are other sports that don't lend themselves to perhaps the sorts of pauses and descriptions and nature and all the other sort of themes and ideas that go into a round of golf. Like golf can be mentally just so rich and so complicated. So golf, I think, does lend itself better than other sports. And I think it lends itself well to books, to reading. So yeah, no, golfers are readers. Thank God. (laughs) So you mentioned Stephen King. Are there any other writers that you admire and you try to emulate their style? Or Yeah, it's funny. When saying Stephen King, I wouldn't say that he's a writer whose style or body of work like i haven't read that much stephen king probably like hardly any at all and you know gosh i would love to have his career but probably not a style that i would emulate but i have a ton of respect for him you know to make that clear but the writers who really influenced me the most were even up through high school and college a short story writer named raymond carver was a writer who sort of tricked me into thinking that i could do this because he was sort of known as this great minimalist. His stories are very spare. The language is very simple. The storylines are pretty straightforward. You know, it's an, they're just wonderful glimpses of these lives that are sort of on the margin. And, but yet they somehow added up to something that could really break your heart. They had extraordinary precision. So you read a story like a Carver story and you think, man, I could write that. I knew every one of those words and I didn't have to look anything up. And that seems so simple, yet it was so effective. And then you get into it and you realize that writing that way is much more difficult yeah. with that kind of clarity and precision. So Carver was hugely important and kind of tricked me into doing this. And then Tim O'Brien, 
you know, in college I was reading every, I read all his novels and after reading the things they carried and the cadences of his sentences inspired me really to no end. I would still, and, and every once in a while still will pick up something, a Tim O'Brien book and read it before I write just to get the cadence of good sentences in my head. I don't write like him. My sentences don't sound like his, but I need to get good sentences spinning in my head to get me out of like all the email I've just done or all the podcasts I've listened to and get me back into the page. I'm really happy to hear you mention music or rhythm as being an important influence in writing because I think about that all the time, that good writing really has a rhythm and it's a lot like music when, it, when it's done well. It is. And let's not forget, you know, this is an oral tradition. I mean, this goes, if you go all the way back to its roots. So the sound of sentences, you know, the first storytellers were poets. They were poets because they couldn't write it down. And so they had, it had to have meter and rhyme so they could remember it. And it becomes memorable for the reader that way as well. And for sentences to really stick and moments in your prose, I think, to really stick with an audience, it should have rhythm. It should have cadence. It should have varying rhythms to set up certain lines and things like that. I mean, I love to read when I'm writing, I'm reading it aloud. I'm listening to the sentences because I think it should be a musical experience. That's what good prose you know, when people will say like, wow, the prose is really something that surprises me because I feel like, well, how else would you do it? It should be musical, right? It should have sound to it. It's just what it is. Let me switch to golf for a second. Do you have a golf swing that you admire that you try to emulate? I would say, yeah, I mean, I always love, and who doesn't love Fred Couples swing? And I always loved Ernie L's tempo. And I have kind of a slow, I'm a taller dude and have like a slow tempo and once in a while some be like hey that's a big easy if i really catch one and man that, that really is good for my ego so I, I love to hear that yeah those would be two swings that i probably think about the most but i actually go back and watch like ben hogan videos too to remind myself to swing with my lower body because he had a, just a great the way his lower body worked you realize that you know the thing that starts the downswing is the lower body and when i do that I just make such better contact, no doubt about it. Do you pause at the top as long as Freddie does? I like to think that I do, <laughs> but I know that I don't. Yeah. It's impossible, you know? You think like, oh, I brought it back so far, or I've, wow, what a long pause, and then you watch it, and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't do any of that. So is your Scotland book going to be your last, your final golf-related obsession? Have you started thinking about your next book? Because if you haven't, I've got a great idea for you. Uh, bring it on. Well, okay. no, it will definitely <laughs> not be my last obsession. I'm always on to the next thing. Here's an idea for you. How about a course called Podcast Land? Searching for book sales. <laughs> I like it. I feel no, like seriously. I'm already doing it. Seriously, do you have something that you're thinking about or can't you talk about it? I do have something I'm thinking about. It's We're literally in the process right now of figuring out the details. I know the story and we're in the sort of business side of it. So which my agent is handling. So I don't want to put too much out there about it. So that's all sorted being a superstitious person. I will say that it's going to be good. (laughs) What what the hell else can I say about it? I don't know. I mean, is it going to be in like another odyssey where you're gone for two years? There will be travel and there will be fun and there will be golf. Okay, good. So tell us about the coin cup. Yeah, the coin cup is the best. And I encourage all your listeners right now to Google the coin cup and Old Sod Travel and sign up. It's been a lot of fun. It was an idea that a friend of mine, Tom Casey at Old Sod Travel, who's a tour operator in Ireland and Scotland, 
and he came to me with this idea. He's like, hey, you know, I hear from folks who have read your book and they want to do like the stuff you did in a course called Ireland or whatever. Why don't we just do a trip and you can host it? And and I said, yeah, like, cool. Let's make it a competition. And so it's been really fun. We've been to Ireland twice, Scotland. We go back and forth. So the fourth one is coming up and it's going to be in the Highlands of Scotland this summer in August. And what we do is characters from the books actually come and participate. So Patty the Caddy, Grandma Billy, Penn, Georgia, Gretchen, the speed golf champion. Like yeah, Robert will be there too. Uh, indeed he will. <laughs> and there was a lot of Roberts on that trip. <laughs> so they all come back and we'll be like, I'm a captain of a team and Patty will be a captain. And we'll just have like a fun kind of Ryder Cup. The competition isn't terribly serious, except for the captains who needle each other all year long if you win or lose. but. The idea of it is to go back to some of the places that maybe some of the hidden gems that I write about, along with some of the big name courses. And it's just the camaraderie that's developed. And we also try to make it like affordable and short enough because I just find with a lot of my friends, they just don't have 10 days always to go abroad and play golf. So we do a shorter like three-day competition. And then there's an extension. You can hang around for that too. It's a lot of fun. The camaraderie has been great. I guess we're doing a good job because the same people come back every year. And it becomes this sort of like little reunion we do every summer. And But we're always looking for new folks. The only rule is like no jerks, no a-holes. Yeah, but you don't know that until you get there. Then what do you do? I know, right? So if you suspect that you might be a jerk, <laughs> please don't come on the coin cup. That needs to be on the application. And it should be some kind of a test. You don't ask them outright. It's some kind of a test developed by a psychologist or something. That I could come up with one. But I think actually the trip is somewhat self-selecting. Okay. In a good way, because like if you're into, you're only doing it if you're probably interested in like the books. And so if you like the books, then you're probably open to a certain maybe sense of humor or perspective. That means you're probably not some like stuffy, angry purist that, you know, otherwise you wouldn't want to come meet me. It's actually, I found that like the people are are in the book so much that they would, are willing to travel and do this. They generally be, are like, they at least seem to be my kind of people, and I think my kind of people are kind of cool. So, Okay, so if people want to sign up for that, they go to your website, and there's an application right there? Yeah, if you go to the website, there'll be a link to the Coin Cup, or if you just Google Coin Cup Old Sod Travel, that's where you can register for it. And we still do have some spots for Scotland 2019, and then 2020 we'll be back in Ireland. Yeah, we go back and forth every year, so... So I noticed on your coin cup shield, the motto, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly because I slept through most of my Latin classes, cave canum, which means beware of the dog. So what's the story behind that? Beware of the dog, cave canum. Yeah, the canum. That is from the first line of a course called Ireland. I run in the first line of course called Ireland is the dog was going to be a problem. That's right. And it details my day, which was actually one of my last walking days where I encountered as I'm walking my way around Ireland, encountered this canine that was more like some, it was prehistoric and it was hungry. And it was the size of a baby rhinoceros. Don't give it away. Make people buy the book and read it. I'd forgotten. <laughs> well, you know, I guess I'm giving it away because you can tell I survived. But, you know, there, there also was an urban definition of that Latin term. And I won't tell you what it is because they'd have to censor it. But you should look it up. Ooh, interesting. Um, Spicy for the coin cup. So... On the few occasions I've been to Ireland to play golf, the pub experience has matched the golf. Do you have a pub story that you could share with us or a caddy story? Because these guys are characters. Most of them do it for a living. 
and they all have a story. Oh, gosh, there's so many stories. And the books are pretty packed with them. It's, you know, you do the trip, and then you save, and the best of the ones that stick with you, you know, end up being the ones that you write about. But yeah, when I did Ireland, I visited over 200 pubs, and I rated them all on different scales. And I mean, yeah, there were crazy things that happened in the pubs. You know, the funny thing was, towards the end of the trip, like I had one guy sit next to me. I came in out of the rain walking. And at the time, I'd been writing in the newspapers over there. So people started to learn about my trip. And I'd seen in this town that there was this tiny famous pub and I was going to stop there on my walk because I was, you know, doing the whole thing on foot. And, you know, I come and I get out of the rain and I sit down next to a stranger. And what's great, it's easy to strike up a conversation with strangers over there. And so he starts describing for me this story, this story of this crazy American who's walking around Ireland with golf clubs <laughs> and he's playing every length in the country and would, you know, who the hell would do that? And your countrymen are crazy and the guy's crazy. And what does he think he did it? And it was just awesome to listen to. And then finally tell him, you know, you're talking to a man and the shock and surprise of like, oh, you know, and that's the gosh, Ireland. Yeah, it's a big country, but in some ways it's such a small country. Like that stuff seems to happen all the time. My favorite caddy story is from the Scotland book where, you know, my dad's at St. Andrews and we'd actually gotten a, a caddy whose last name was Coyne too by accident, or I think it had been planned. But anyway, it was really cool. And the guy brought like our family shield and like coin history for us. So my dad's totally bonding with his caddy. My dad's 83 at this point. We're playing the old course. It's just super special. The weather's horrible, but who cares? And we're going along and the caddy asked my dad, you know, where do you play back in the States? And my dad says, well, you wouldn't know it. It's like a small, you know, it's a course outside Philadelphia. It's a place called Lulu, which some people might know. It's actually a wonderful Donald Ross course, but not a caddy in St. Andrews. And the caddy turns to me and says, ah, Lulu, is that in, that's in Glenside, right? And, you know, my dad, oh my gosh, cannot believe that this caddy knows of Lulu. And he says, yeah, in Glenside, that's amazing. And the caddy says, is, yeah, is Johnny Ross still there, the head pro? And my, so my dad now is just freaking out like, John Rusk, you know, John, you know, cannot believe the coincidence of this Scottish caddy knowing, you know, his home course, his home caddy. So he's talking and talking. He finally says, so how do you know? What's your connection? How do you know Lulu and, and John? And the caddy says, I don't know either of them, but I can read your bag tag. And I thought, <laughs> I said, you know, these guys are pros. You know, yeah. he's probably done that a thousand times. They're great. They're just yeah. awesome. And they'll not only caddy for you, a lot of the times you go to some of these places, not necessarily at the old course, but some of these clubs where if you want a caddy, like a member will come out and caddy for you. And that's so cool. They'll come in and have a pint with you afterwards. It's not like employer relationship at all. In fact, I think sometimes you feel very much like inferior, especially if you're playing poorly and the caddy's giving you a hard time. That's all part of the fun too. Yeah. So my father was from Scotland and my mother, second generation Irish. So I had my own perceptions of the difference between the Scots and Irish in terms of temperament and personality. But you've lived it for quite a while. You probably saw more Scots and Irish than I ever will in my lifetime. So do you think there's any great difference between Scots and Irish in terms of temperament? Not a great difference, but I think there is a difference. You know, it depends on where you are in Scotland, where you are in Ireland, et cetera, et cetera, because the temperaments change on the islands too. You know, the Highlanders have kind of a different way of looking at things than folks in Edinburgh. And the same way, you know, the Dubliners see things differently than folks in Donegal or in Cork. You know, I would say that, you know, traveling around like in East Lothian or North Berwick or areas around Edinburgh, you know, there's a, um, there definitely was a sense a little more propriety 
a notion of standards and high standards, you know, especially when it came to golf and golf clubs. I wouldn't say necessarily stuffy, but Scotland, certain places can definitely feel much more British in that sense, where Ireland, you're not going to really find that at all. And I kind of describe, it kind of comes down to the difference between like an Irish golf trip and a Scottish golf trip. Like if you just want to like laugh and have fun and see crazy scenery and go to the pubs and maybe you want to go to the pubs more than the golf courses, some guys go on those trips for that reason. And, you know, if it's all about the chuckles and the jokes, you know, Ireland has that, you know, in abundance and it has great golf courses too. But if you really want to golf your brains out and get into history and follow in the footsteps of all these important names and, and take it seriously, take your golf seriously. I mean, Scotland is the trip for you. And it's actually probably where I am in my golf. That's why I love going to Scotland so much now. So yeah, I guess the Scots are a little more proper, but they're still both up for a lot of fun and a good joke, no doubt about it. Did you have any trouble with the accents, especially the Highlanders? It gets pretty thick. It does get pretty thick. The accents, and but you know, as I was going around, I was picking up, you know, the changes. So I would slowly be introduced as I make my way up the East Coast that it was getting thicker and thicker and then down the West Coast. So I did okay. Some of the slang, you know, was definitely an education. You know, the Scots will use rhyming slang like the English will. So there were words that were completely lost on me. But that was fun to learn. Like, you know, when you say, hey, you know where that, your caddy, like, do you have any idea where that one ended up? And he says, I don't have a Scooby. And you're thinking, a Scooby? Like, what the hell is he talking about? And then you do this. I actually figured that one out on my own, which was fun because I did the rhyme in my head. I'm like, all right, Scooby, Scooby Doo, do clue. He doesn't have a clue. So in <laughs> Scotland, if you don't have a Scooby, it means you have no idea. Um, oh, that's funny. Yeah. So picking up on like their little and even regional expressions, that was an education and it was fun. So yeah, it was good. Good. And so my question first to you. So you discover this pristine golf course that you fall in love with. So my question to you is, now that you've told the world about it, and I hate this when this happens, I call it yuppieization, where you get someplace that's really nice, and then everybody discovers it, and then the next time you go there, it's too many people and too many chachi shops. So are you going to be guilty of deflowering Askernish? <laughs> well, yeah, the gentrification, right, of the, some of these lesser-known places. First of all, if that did happen, that meant like hundreds of thousands of people bought the book. And so I would be really, really excited in a selfish way oh, you that poor. I spoiled it for everyone. But I would be rolling around in money here. No, I'm just kidding. It's sort of. One thing, it, why I'm not terribly concerned about that is that Askernish is no easy haul. It is not easy to get there. And it's only going to be for folks who are really golf soul seekers, you know, who really want to be there. And if they're those people, they should be there. So that's cool. And heck, there's only, you know, what, probably 100 bedrooms on the island for anywhere, anyone to stay. And they're just, again, you know, it's the flights and the ferries to get there. It's just, it's not that simple. So you're going to have to really want to do it. It would be different if it was just off the main road and I'd finally pointed it out to everyone and then it became overrun. But I don't see Askernish on the Isle of Southeast getting there. I think that one's safe. Some others might get a little more traffic and, you know, I think every course right now in golf can use a little more traffic. So yeah, good. that's true. So you're off the hook. So do you have a swing thought that you use consistently either off the tee or on the green? Yeah. Don't miss it. it is, <laughs> Great. Is generally it's positive thinking. Is, is what worked for me. The best swing thought, if I ever remember to have one, is target and tempo. 
if I'm thinking about those two things and just not faking it, but actually really those two things are in my head, I can generally, I think, you know, your body, I have enough athletic ability left where I can adjust my swing will move to the target. Uh, but in order for it to do that, I have to have good tempo or I won't give it the time to do it. So target and tempo for me seem to work all right. Okay. What are the, on any particular day, what's the strongest and weakest part of your game? Driving is always going to be the strength of my game. I'm not super long, but I'm for a country club golfer. I guess I'm, I'd be considered a long player and I'm generally, my misses aren't, I don't blow it off the map either. So it's, I'll hit driver 14 times around. Like, I don't, if the caddy's like, no, three wood here. No, forget it, dude. Give me the driver. <laughs> like, I'm hitting driver because it has the biggest face. I'm not going to miss it. And I'm the most comfortable with it. So, yeah, driver's strong. I'm not a bad putter. My weakness is, yeah, it would be my mid irons and probably even my wedges should be so much better. And they're not. I need to be a lot better from 100 yards. And yeah. that's probably true of everybody, though. So, look, it's pretty clear what kind of courses that you like. Is there any type of layout that you hate playing or an architect that you think should be shot? <laughs> I'd hate to have, see any architects, you know, shot because you know, they're doing their best. I don't mean shot. You know what I mean? Just should be banished. Is that safer? Yeah, no. I think that, you know, I would say courses that I don't necessarily really look forward to playing are your prototypical like Florida community golf course that's going to wind in and out of condominiums and it's going to have water on both sides on every hole, you know, because the water table so low. So you just you dig there and you find a lake. So I would say that. But at the same time, I play a lot of it because I'm a junkie and I need to get golf in the winter. So I'm down in Florida a couple times, probably five or six times every winter to play and visit friends and do all that stuff. So as much as like, I don't really look forward to playing those courses, by the time January rolls around, they look much better than they would in the summer when I can yeah. play something else. So, But what about like something like the ocean course at Kiowa? Do you enjoy that kind of target golf? The ocean course. So, I mean, I, the setting is awesome. It's stunningly beautiful being out there. I didn't have, I've only played it once and it was really hard. It wasn't a course where I'd want to run back and say, oh, I can't wait to play there tomorrow. But frankly, I got my butt kicked. And so, yeah, maybe that kind of golf isn't my, as someone who loves the creativity of a true links course that doesn't require you to carry something any particular distance that gives you all these different options that gives you, that inspires you to be creative. Whereas a target course sort of asks you to do one thing. I don't find that as interesting, but hey, it's beautiful. It's dramatic. And Kia was a hell of a nice place to be. I figured you were thinking about that. I can't trash you too much. So I got two more questions, Tom. Hang in there with me. First of all, I want to know about your love affair with Mizuno. Is that based on your love of the club or is that a commercial relationship or a combination of both? They just pay me big money to say nice. No, I'm just kidding. They don't pay <laughs> me at all. That started with when I was doing Paper Tiger this book where I was trying to play pro golf. And my coach at the time, Dr. Jim Suddy, was on their staff. I told him I needed an equipment per deal or a sponsor, you know, someone just to help me out and get me fitted. I didn't need any, wasn't, didn't deserve any money. I just wanted to be, I wanted free stuff. And Mizuno got on board and fit me with great equipment. And ever since then, they've been super supportive. They've been great. They don't make balls though. So Titleist has also been part of my, you know, 
I guess it's sort of like an ambassador kind of thing. You know, I play Mizuno clubs and Titleist balls and Footjoy shoes and all that. It's just, that's what I've done since Paper Tiger. And when a new project comes up, I tell my friends there about it and they send me stuff and, you know, and it gets, it works its way into the book. And it's bad luck to change, right? Right. It is. Uh, They're (laughs) awesome. I just like, they're kind of the little guy who kind of makes the best stuff. You know, that's kind of cool too, you know. Last question. So what's your number one piece of advice for writers who aspire to make a living at their craft, whether it be golf or any other subject? Don't quit your day job. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, you're not. No, 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 no. I honestly, it's to, but before you can be a good writer, I think you have to be a great reader. I have students that will come into my courses and say, you know, I want to write books or I want to write. And I'll ask them about the last book they read and they can't tell me. Or they say, you know, I don't really like to read. And that always gets me. And so that's, I mean, the way, as we said, we were talking about can writing be taught? Well, the way you learn to do it is you read great writers or you read writers who inspire you or you read writers, you know, that who you would like to write like. Not that you're going to copy them, but, you know, you're going to be inspired by them. So I think that's the biggest thing is to being a writer is to read your butt off. And then from there, write every day. Don't let, it has to become something where you do it when it's not easy and you do it when it's not fun. Yeah, it has to be something to become something where you absolutely feel compelled to do it because if you don't do it, you don't feel like yourself. And I think once you get to that point, you can call yourself a writer. I don't care if you make money or not. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate your time. I learned a lot of stuff. Is there anything you want to plug before I end the discussion as in terms of how people get in touch with you or anything else? Yeah, I mean, if you go to tomcoin.com, you can hit contact and shoot me an email. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at CoinWriter. Come on the Coin Cup. Purchase a course called Ireland in hardback at your local retailer or wherever you buy books. You can go through your website, get lots of great Christmas gifts. Father's Day is right around the corner, I think. No, it's not. Well, it could be for some people. So, hey, I just hope they have the chance to check out the story and they enjoy it. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. Gordon, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to GolfYeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com. 